Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. that I am uh, captivated this morning by passages of Scripture that really just sort of focus and hone in on the Christian life and how to live it. Uh, We talked at the opening of the first hour about uh, Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. And so we're going to lead off in this hour um, with the opening opening verses from Ephesians chapter 4. We could actually, you could spend all day in uh, in just this handful of verses, you could spend, I mean, you could spend a really long time uh, marinating in in these verses of scripture. So these are the lead off verses in Ephesians chapter four. I'm going to read through verse six. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, so you can just pause right there. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a prisoner for the Lord? What does it mean to be so captured and captivated in heart and mind and spirit? that I am a bondservant of Christ. What what does that mean? No longer a slave to fear, no longer a slave to sin, set free by the grace of God uh, in Jesus Christ, and then willingly, joyfully submitted to him. So, as a prisoner for the Lord then, Paul also, you know, talking as like a physical prisoner, which is something he experienced and many of us have not, but many Christians do. All right, as a prisoner for the Lord then, You see, I didn't get very far, did I? I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So again, let's pause right there. What is the calling that you have received as a Christian? Well, just to be called a Christian, right, is a part of that. So to go by the name Christian, to go by the moniker Christian, to go by the description Christian is what people are calling you. So that is a calling, but that is not the kind of calling uh, really, that Paul is talking about here. What does it mean to live into the calling as a Christ follower, as a disciple, as a person fully given over uh, to Jesus? I urge you to live a life worthy of that calling. That's the calling you've received. It's a calling of hope and a calling of joy and a calling of evangelism. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling of Christ. What does that look like? So, Paul gives us some hints. Be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he reminds us, there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me encourage you to spend time today in the Word of God. The world is on fire, and it wants us to be on fire. But we are going to be a people of peace. We are going to be peacemakers. We are going to be ambassadors of the King and the Kingdom. 
We are going to represent Christ to the world in a way that he would recognize himself. In all of that, we are going to seek to lead lives that are worthy of the calling to which we have been called in Jesus Christ. Bill English joins me next from BibleandBusiness.com. Uh, we are going to um, we're going to talk about one thing going on in California, and uh, and then we're just going to I don't know we're just going to range around in conversation today. Um, I'm going to ask Bill what his comfort food is, but I, I might ask him some other things too. Favorite passage of scripture? Yeah, this is going to be one of those like real conversations with uh, with no prep other than our whole lives. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me again today, Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm, I am I am excellent. How are you doing today? I am tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I know. I get that. I'm, I sort of like live with a um, right now with a low level of exhaustion. Oh, do you? Yeah, I just I, I, I just I find I find many, many things that are happening right now pretty exhausting and um, and so I'm, I've just determined to not give in to that uh, spirit of, you know, where it just feels like the darkness is just hanging right there kind of over your eyebrows. Yeah, I'm not giving in to that. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad yeah. you're not. You I'm go. glad you're not. No, I'm just tired because I was up watching the election about 1030. Now, I normally go to bed, so everybody <laughs> knows, between 830 and 9, right? And then uh, my cat, Gary, well, Gary's Gary. a cat. Gary. Mm-hmm. Gary, my cat, oftentimes comes in by 11 or 12 and wakes me up. But, you know, um, I was up till 1030 last night. And uh, for me, that's just insane. Insane hours for me to be up. So I'm tired this morning. So here so. are some uh, here are some questions for you that um, have emerged in uh, in conversations that um, that people have been uh, communicating with me. They've been asking me some like, how do I deal with questions? And I thought, I'm just going to pose those to Bill. Oh, okay. All right. So um, we've moved. Many, many people are still functioning in this, like, Zoom work environment, right? Not not right. going into the office, certainly not going into the office and interacting with one another like we used to. Um, and lots of new people have, you know, well, lots of people have changed jobs in the midst of the pandemic. And so now on our Zoom calls let's say, or our Teams calls or whatever platform your group is meeting on, there are people who are now a part of conversations or a part of the quote-unquote group who were not a part when all of this started. So the shared experience of sort of going into lockdown or going through lockdown or the shared experience of one team member had COVID or how do we get our work environments, you know, set up for all of this or dealing with kids or whatever, all of those things that were sort of shared, you know, things got way more personal. People were, yeah. I mean, people could see into one another's homes. And now we have new team members coming on board. Um, and so can we just talk about, like, that we're in a very weird place in terms of, like, the integration of of teams um, because many people have had a shared experience and then there are new people and it's not fair to sort of leave them out, but we don't know how to integrate them either. Well, I think you integrate them the way you normally would. Uh, look, I— What does I that mean? 
Well, it, it means that you get to know them like you would anybody else. You know, you figure out their swim lane on the team in terms of what their role is, what they're supposed to do, that kind of thing. Uh, I think I think it's the felt part of this is that almost one third of our workforce has changed jobs in the last, I want to say, eight or nine months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is kind of surfacing some of this uh, that you're describing. Uh, I, I know at the business that I'm running right now, we've hired, I don't know, 10, 15 people in the last eight or nine months. And we only have like uh, 60 people in the office. So uh, it's it's just a matter of, okay, you got the new person here. We love you. You know, I'm Bill. You're, you know, so-and-so. And and you get to meeting them. I, I, I just don't know that it's anything different than what we would normally do. So onboarding and, and, in COVID, it, uh, onboarding in the midst of where we are now, doesn't it doesn't have to look as different as it might well, feel yeah, to I a mean, non-HR person. I'm not an HR person. So, you know, to me, it's like, oh. <gasps> How is that person going to feel like a part of the group? But what you're saying is, from an onboarding perspective, that's actually not as hard as I'm suspecting. You know, I, I'm going to tell you, to be honest with you, uh, I do a lot of Zooms and I do some Teams, Microsoft Teams. Uh, we have both technologies in our office. Um, I do a lot of Zooms. I got to tell you, we actually hold in our office our intra-office meetings on Teams now. And what I like about it is that I can see everybody's face and I can see their emotional responses. They can Mm -hmm. see mine. It's actually better than sitting in a conference room socially distanced with a mask. Oh, definitely. From a a nonverbal perspective. So the onboarding of somebody over, let's say, Zoom, maybe, uh, you know – the first time you meet them or for the first five times you meet them is, is over Zoom, to me, might actually be better than the social distance and the mask option. Interesting. Okay, I like that. Um, okay, I have so many questions for you today. Sure, um, but go we have to take a very, very brief I know we gotta take a very brief break. When we come back, um, can you from like a business person's perspective, um, if you owned a shop on a you know, on a commercial street and you sold things and your state told you that shoplifting was now legal. I just want you to reflect on that with me for just a minute, because that's what's going on in California. And so I just want you to maybe talk about how long you think you'd stay in business in a state that made shoplifting legal. All right. That conversation up next with Bill English. It's like the price, sunrise, waiting on the other side of the darkest night. Talking with Bill English from BibleInBusiness.com. All right, Bill, I want you to imagine that you are a business owner in the state of California and you sell stuff. That's And you have a storefront. Um, right. And because of a 2014 ballot measure um, right. that uh, allows organized theft rings to repeatedly steal up to the $950 limit, knowing that they will likely uh, face only citation and no jail time, um, so they can keep coming back over and over and over again, uh, and they won't be prosecuted. Um, how long do you imagine that you are going to remain in business in California? Uh, well, it's actually in San Francisco, isn't it? Or is it California? Is it statewide? Well, Proposition 20. Well, this this particular thing that they voted on yesterday, I know, is not the uh, not just the shoplifting one that's just okay. absolutely free reign in San Francisco. But across the state of California— um, you can't be prosecuted if you if like you only steal uh, a certain amount. You can't be. They're not prosecuting them. It's just yeah, bananas. It's... All right. So let's talk about specifically the one in 
in uh, in San Francisco, which just let me tell people, I'm reading this out of the Wall Street Journal, which I know has a paywall. So uh, the article is California, the shoplifting state, retail theft was decriminalized. Guess what happened? So I'll let you tell people yeah. what happened. You know, businesses go out of business. I mean, you, you can't you can't have somebody walk in and say, um, you know, I'm just going to take $950 worth of alcohol, go out to their car, deposit it in the back seat, come back in and keep repeating that process and expect to stay in business. Uh, if, you know, I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but I'll, I'll, I'll try this one thing. If, you, if you're a shop owner and you buy uh, a widget uh, for $10 and you want to sell it for 20 what's your profit on that? It's $10, right? And so, but if somebody comes in and takes that widget, um, you have to sell a nut, you have to sell two more widgets to make up what you lost. And so, this this idea that um, the shop owners, you know, can it, that they're going to be able to survive something like this is just insanity. And there's only so many times that they're going to be able to file with their insurance carriers to say, "Hey, this this is stolen property. I need to be reimbursed." Before the insurance companies say, "We're no longer going to insure you." And so, once you once you lose the insurance, once you have people stealing from your store, uh, you're not going to be in business very long. So one of the um, featured businesses um, is Walgreens, and this is the story that's told in the article. Um, This is a Walgreens in San Francisco. Uh, It's closed now um, because its shelves were cleared most recently by looters. Um, But here is what a long-term customer said to the San Francisco Chronicle. All of us knew this was coming. Uh, Whenever we go in there, they always have problems with shoplifters. Um, he went on to say, I feel sorry for the clerks. They're regularly being verbally assaulted. The clerks say there's nothing they can do. They say that the store's policy is to not get involved because they don't want anybody getting injured or sued. And these guys then just keep coming in and taking whatever they want. Um, <clears throat> it occurs to me, Bill, that if I'm if I'm a paying customer and I'm watching this happening, um, eventually I am thinking to myself, hey, um, why am I paying if you can just walk exactly. out with it for free? So, you know, yeah. the good news is there there is still a moral conscience in America, but we are going to arrive at the place where we can't go in and buy something because other people are going in and stealing it. Well, and it, and it takes away from the uh, product availability to those who are honest. Because if stores have to shut down, then that reduces and individuals, I'll call of their supply chain. You know, I can no longer go to that Walgreens now. So now I got to go to maybe a, I don't know, a 7-Eleven or something else. Uh, but if the 7-Eleven is going out of business, you know, after a while, I don't have any place to go to buy what I really need because the law is encouraging uh, theft and the theft is putting businesses out of business. Which is actually how we arrived at the uh, circumstance of what are known as food deserts in urban centers. It's at least part of part of the reason there are these, you know, food deserts. And so I just, it's a real challenge and we are going to have to um, figure it out as a country. Um, this is a moral issue as much as anything else. When a person, you know, does not have uh, any uh, any sense that they cannot just go in and take things, um, then we've arrived at a, you know, we've arrived at a challenging point. I mean, you know, let's just, let's just imagine we were a, uh, a communist regime with a socialist government, um, you can't just walk in under socialism and take what you want. First of all, what you want isn't there. And 
um, your your ability to go and get something is strictly limited. I mean, like, I don't know what people think is is coming if that what they imagine is, oh, this is just my own little personal version of the redistribution of wealth. Yeah, there, there are some who think that, uh, to be sure. I remember seeing a news uh, article, or not article, but a news clip recently where, where a gal said, um, and she was pretty angry about it. She said, if somebody goes in and steals something, that's just reparations in action. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's immorality. Um, and, you know, this, this is a bondage. This is a type of spiritual bondage that our, um, our, at least in California, that they are allowing to take place. And whenever sin takes root, takes, takes hold, you are not going to have good outcomes. Uh, this, when, when, when you mentioned this, I thought of or this story right before we went on the air. I thought of Ephesians 4.28. Uh, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but he must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. We don't need people stealing. We need people working so that they can give away rather than taking from people. This is this is a spiritual bondage piece. And how do you attack it? I personally, I think you attack it first through um, arresting these people and and prosecuting them, and then I think you got to come back around and see if you can introduce them to Christ and see if their hearts can be changed. It's incredibly challenging, um, and I think that this is one of those uh, conversations that we're going to increasingly have. And it's maybe not a surprise to me that you know people are moving from California to other parts of the country. Where well, sure, why, uh, these... why wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, if you're a if you're a business owner. And you can get out of there. You're you're leaving. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. I, I see it in my own community. I mean, the the California and New York license plates are becoming pretty frequent um, in you know in flyover country. And so it's just an interesting. Um, we have an interesting shift happening all over the place. That sort of takes us back to a third of the workforce has changed jobs in the last eight months. Um, you know that many of those people have like geographically moved out of some of America's urban centers. Um, and it just—it's going to be a very interesting realignment that takes place not only in the in the coming year but in the years to come. Well, if California keeps doing stuff like this, they are going to become uh, really a shell of who they were, say, forty or fifty years ago. I mean, when you and I were mm-hmm. growing up, Carmen, California was the golden the place state, to be, right? It Absolutely. really was. Yeah, and now everybody was trying to, to move to Beverly. Of. I know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I have one. Uh, I know. Sure. Right? I have a yeah, question before uh, yeah. before we go. Um, uh, lots of people are just going to be looking to uh, find some comfort today to satiate themselves. Um, what's your comfort food? Do you have one? I have several. My wife thinks mm-hmm. it's meatloaf. I asked her during the <gasps> break. Um, mm. But uh, I like uh, peanut butter and Ritz crackers. Not just any crackers. Ritz crackers. What kind of peanut butter? Uh, smooth. Okay. Or, or do I do I have to have a brand? I like Jif. No, no. I like oh, I, I, I straight like up Jif. Jif, smooth Jif and Ritz crackers. All right, there you go. Yeah, what else? I, I like that. And uh, another comfort food is ice cream. Ice cream, you know, vanilla with chocolate sauce and maybe some whipped cream. That's Ooh. a Sunday. That's not just ice cream. Yeah. I'm just saying. And then, yeah. And then so really chocolate a... chip cookies with milk. Mm. Which, do you like uh, chocolate chip cookies? I do. I do. Warm, warm oh, chocolate yeah. chip cookies. I mean, I should, soft, I should, I'm making soft. my list. Warm yeah. chocolate chip cookies. Um, 
Do you have a, a chip preference? Are you like a chunk person, a milk chocolate, dark chocolate, any anything will go with nuts, uh, without uh, nuts? No nuts, please. Oh, my gosh. Don't ruin it with nuts. See, this is um, important to know. No nuts. And don't put nuts in bread either. Don't do that. <laughs> bread is to be soft. You can put nuts in pies, but not in bread. <laughs> Uh, but I like milk Don't put nuts in chips. pies. What kind of pie would you put a nut in other than like a nut pie, like a pecan pie? But other than that, yeah, there's pecans, no nut in a pie. Pecans. Yeah, well, okay. I, I was thinking of pecans at the time. Yeah. Um, warm chocolate chip cookies with no nuts. Um, and then what kind of milk are we serving with that? I'm going to have uh, really cold skim milk, but what kind are you going to have? You and I are the same. I will have cold skim milk, but I like the milk chocolate chips, mm -hmm. not, the, not the dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. All right. I want vanilla I vanilla ice cream with chocolate sauce, not with hot fudge. Uh, no, I I like hot fudge, but I can never get it hot enough uh, or make it so it isn't glumpy and gloopy. Mm -hmm. So just cold. So David French earlier um, shared that his um, uh, his comfort food he does like fried chicken. Um, but in, in the ice cream category, it's interesting. Ice cream is on a lot of people's, uh, comfort food list. Um, it's uh, mint chocolate chip. So just thought I'd share that. No, All right. No we got it. No, I do. No. I do like me a good peanut butter cracker. So it's good to know. All right. Hey, thanks. We got to go. I'm so over time. We got to take a break for Breakpoint. Thank you so much. You bet. Okay. We'll be right back. All righty. Uh, this is a great time for us to be having a conversation about hope and being a good neighbor. And so the Hopeful Neighborhood Project and the Hopeful Neighborhood Book are up next. Don Everts, we have uh, talked with Don on several occasions um, before. You will remember that he is the author of The Spiritually Vibrant Home. He's the author of The Reluctant Witness, a couple of my favorite books. For those of you in church leadership, you've probably done Breaking the Huddle. Um, Don Everts is, uh, is really good, really adept at helping us see ourselves um, using really, really uh, timely research and then uh, to help us make that step into the world that God so loves um, in ways that are honest to the gospel and frankly, get us beyond being just super duper scared of encountering and engaging others with the gospel. So there you go. That's my promo for Don Everts. He's up next. We're going to talk about the Hopeful Neighborhood Project. We're going to talk about the new book, The Hopeful Neighborhood. We'll be right back. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. That's John chapter 11, verses 1 and 3. This is Max Locato. Lazarus was a real person with a real problem. He was sick, but he had someone going for him. Others were fans of Christ. Lazarus was friends with him. So the sisters of Lazarus simply wrapped their concern in a sentence, and they left it with Jesus. They did not tell him how to respond, no presumption. A lesson for us, perhaps? Christ responded to the crisis of health with a promise of help. Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. Lazarus, we learn, will find himself in the valley of death, but he will not stay there because Christ was with him. Remember, friends, you are never alone.
All right, joining me now, uh, one of my favorite people to talk with, it's Don Everts. You can find him, um, well, kind of all over the place. He's an author. Um, I am going to recommend that you check out what he's doing at hopefulneighborhood.org. Um, but you can also find him on the Twitters at Don Everts. You can find him at Lutheran Hour Ministries at lhm.org. Don, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Great to be with you, Carmen. I love the intro music. That was great. Right, right. Paul will work you up a whole neighborhood <laughs> playlist if you want. Montage. Paul's, Wonderful. Yeah, he's really good at that. Really good. Okay, um, first of all, I um, I love this project, not just a book, but a project. And so really mm-hmm. want to encourage people to check out hopefulneighborhood.org. Tell us about the Hopeful Neighborhood Project, and then we'll talk about the book. Yeah, so the project is basically, you know, from our research that we did on how Christians are relating with their neighborhoods, that's kind of this research project we did with Barna, and part of what it revealed is that, boy, uh, this is a great part of the Christian legacy, Uh, a a, a keynote of Christians for 2,000 years has been to be salt and light right where we live, and, and to be a blessing to the people in place right around us. And the research reveals maybe we're not doing that as much as we used to. And so the Hopeful Neighborhood Project is about hope. It's about helping people figure out how to make a difference and and have agency as Christians right where they live. So it's it's about the hyper-local. It's about loving neighbors, just like the song said. Uh, and, and because not only does that make a difference as we pursue the common good of the communities we live in, the neighborhoods we live in, but history tells us and scripture reveals to us that that will actually attract people to the gospel. So um, I love, as a part of uh, what you have posted at um, at the neighborhoodproject.org, mm-hmm. you have this neighborhood gift inventory. This is yes. maybe one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. So can you can you tell people what this is? Because this is really cool. Yeah. You know, the whole idea is if we're going to pursue the common good of our neighborhood, the place to start is not by looking at, well, what are the problems or what annoys me? You know, that sort of thing or what's worked in other neighborhoods. But it's to start by looking and saying what gifts are already here in the neighborhood. That we believe that God is is the giver of gifts, that every every human around us is a gift with gifts to share. And there are gifts in the environment around us, in, in the in the associations, the businesses, etc. And so we're just encouraging people. We've developed this three-step process, very simple that anyone can do. But the process begins with curiosity in saying, what are the gifts that God has already put in the neighborhood? Who are my neighbors? What are the gifts that they have? Uh, what, what are the gifts in the environment? What are the parks, the associations, the clubs, the churches, etc.? That, that are already there. And what we've found and, and, and what people uh, have been finding for, for centuries is that when you look and say, what has God already put here? Then when you start by looking at those gifts, boy, you, you, you've got a head start on pursuing the common good, on making a difference in the neighborhood. So that assessment you're talking about, it's a simple tool that can help people look at their own neighborhood with new eyes. You know, a lot of us a lot of us are like me, and I'll just confess, Carmen, uh, I, for, for a long time I've been living above place, meaning I'm living my life without any meaningful connection with the neighborhood I live in, the place and people right around me. And, and the inventory you're talking about is a simple tool. It's like a, a, a pair of glasses someone can put on to look around their neighborhood and realize, man, 
God has blessed this neighborhood, and how can we use those gifts uh, for the good of the neighborhood? So that gets us to this conversation about the common good. You've used that phrase a couple of times. Uh Um, Let me remind people that I'm talking with Don Everts. You can check out what we're talking about today at hopefulneighborhood.org. We're also going to be talking about the book, The Hopeful Neighborhood, which maybe is the launch into this conversation, because you do start off talking about the common good. What is the common good, and why should I be concerned about pursuing it? Great question. The common good, in short, is the well-being or flourishing of everything in a place. Uh, and, and, And the reason that we as Christians in particular should be concerned about pursuing the common good and, and, and pursuing the flourishing or well-being of the place and people around us is because God calls us to, right? So three touch points in the Bible really quick. In, in, in the garden at the beginning, God created humans and he said, I created you to care for the place where you are. That, that, that was part of our creation mandate that didn't go away when we got kicked out of the garden. Uh, think about the Israelites when they were in Babylon, right? They're, they're the visiting team. They're, they're not at home anymore. They just want to escape or survive. And God says, no. He sends a letter through Jeremiah that says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you. The, the translation there is that Hebrew word shalom, the, the flourishing, the well-being of the place. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus calls his people to do the same, be salt and light. Peter's writing a letter to exiles in Asia Minor. And what does he say to them? The same thing Jeremiah said. He says, I know you're the visiting team. I know you're taking it on the chin. I know that doesn't feel good. But what you are called to do is to do good, pursue shalom, uh, the welfare of the people in place right around you. So that's why it should matter. And, And especially for Christians who believe in the gospel and want other people to be attracted to the gospel, one of the things church history shows us, Carmen, is that when Christians are pursuing the common good, when when we are being a blessing in really tangible ways, people notice. The the one of the early Christian historians said that the early Christians had eloquent behavior. The mm. way they behaved said something and proclaimed something and and many scholars say that's why the church grew as it did. It grew because Christians were hopefully pursuing the common good of the place around them during pandemics. You know, think of all the harsh situations they faced. They loved, they they lifted up the people around them. And that was a way of proclaiming the gospel indeed. And that attracts people to the gospel. So there's a couple reasons why we should, as Christians, care about pursuing the common good. And and for 2,000 years we have, and we've we've maybe lost sight of it a little bit in recent years, but uh, we believe that the time has returned for us to reclaim this part of the Christian faith. All right, and that gets into the conversation about what season are we in, um, talking about seasons of the gospel. That's a part of the book as well. Hey, I'm talking with Don Everts. We are talking about... The Hopeful Neighborhood Project, which you can find at hopefulneighborhood.org. We're also talking about the Hopeful Neighborhood book, and InterVarsity Press has supplied us with some copies to give away. So if this is right up your alley, you know you've been living above place, you want to engage your neighborhood, you want to be a person um, who promotes human flourishing through the common good, this is your book. So go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. And Don Everts and I will be right back. All right, I'm talking with Don Everts. We are talking about 
The Hopeful Neighborhood, the book and the project. You can find it all at hopefulneighborhood.org. I am giving copies of the book away. Uh, If you are interested, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Don, um, let's... um, Let's let's give people a little taste of this. Um, uh, let's let's do a little uh, practical um, excerpt here. So, Wonderful. lead us into like how might I do this? How do I get my thoughts? Mm-hmm. How do I get my thoughts redirected to my own neighborhoods? This is like positive triggering. How do I get my brain yeah. to fire off in the right direction? Yeah, great, great idea. You know, and, and where we recommend everyone begins is by discovering the gifts of their neighborhood. And so it's by becoming curious. So curiosity, that's a fun place to start, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so how do you be curious about your neighbors, uh, about what's in your neighborhood? So one of the things that we find uh, is that a lot of people don't know their neighbors <laughs> or they know them a little bit, but not enough to know, boy, this is my neighbor and here's what they're really good at and the gifts that they bring. And so we have a variety of tools Uh, a a kind of an online process that people can do. But on a really practical level, uh, we have ideas for how people can get to know their neighbors. Just just starting there, Uh, just crossing the lawn, talking to their neighbors more. We have uh, the inventory you talked about, uh, the neighborhood inventory. We, We know people who have taken the inventory and not just, you know, sat down as a solo exercise, but they've gone to their neighbors and said, hey, I'm wanting to be more curious about our neighborhood would you do that with me? Because some of these questions on this inventory, I don't have answers to. You've lived here longer than I have. Could you help me do that? So so there we have like using a little tool that helps you ask new questions about where you live and kind of see it with new eyes. Uh, be, because we all become home blind to the things we see every day. We, we stop noticing the details, but also doing it in a way that is relational and, and building relationships. And, and the, the beautiful thing, Carmen, the Hopeful Neighborhood Project is for Christians and non-Christians, right? Does, it doesn't matter your creed. You can pursue the common good. And well, that's so we good because really... my, my neighborhood is not all Christians. Exactly. So it's good, right? It's good that the Neighborhood Project, like, helps me see that, understand that. Um, I mean, one of the things that I just think is critical for us to recognize as Christians, like I'm not inviting a new Muslim family um, to have ham at my house uh, on Easter. (laughs) Like, right? That is not not loving my neighbor. Like that's going to be the first clue that I have not been a student of who they are. That's a great way of putting it. How, How do we become students of the the people who are right around us. And the the beautiful thing about that is it helps us build bridges. And so the book you've mentioned is for Christians. We get into the Bible, we get into church history, we get into embarrassing stories from my life. Uh, We get into the research to help Christians reorient and reclaim this part of their faith. But everything on the website, every the online process for the Hopeful Neighborhood Project uh, is is also non-Christian friendly. So a lot of the theological stuff is taken out because we want to see Christians stand shoulder to shoulder with their non-Christian neighbors and make a difference together. There's something extraordinarily bonding about that. It will change, help us reclaim our reputation uh, in this country. Uh, it will help us build bridges with non-Christians. You know, and you know, Carmen, I do a lot of evangelism training, right? Mm-hmm. One of the big things that a lot of that it, barriers for churches and Christians to share the good news is they don't have any friends who are non-Christians. Well, this is th- this is a win-win, right? 
we can pursue the common good with our non-Christian neighbors and at the same time build bridges that can help us gain a hearing that if the Holy Spirit moves, actually they're going to become more curious. Why are you so positive? Why are you doing this in your life? And boom, what do you know? That a door is open for us to talk about the hope that is within us. So, Don, um, one of the things I'm aware of is that something like 16 million people have moved during the pandemic. I know that that is true on my own street. I have new neighbors whom I have not met. I have seen them walking, um, and we have said, who is that? Where do they live? Like, what's going on? We wave. I'm waving, but it's COVID. So it's not like I'm stopping and rolling down my window and saying, hey, you know, welcome to the stroke. So I do think that part of what you're offering us is a way to engage our changing neighborhood. It's a it's offering yes. us ways to look at ourselves um, and re-engage. We all want to do that. We all have a heart to do that. Yes. We just don't know how. And you have um, really, again, adeptly provided uh, resources for us online and in the book that they're, it's very tangible. It's very concrete. Get out a map. Draw a circle around what you consider yes. to be your neighborhood. Do some research about your neighborhood. Um, start a journal. Um Add a neighborhood section to your prayer rhythm. Prayer walk your neighborhood. I mean, on and on and on. Just such great, just like simple, really simple, but very tangible. Like, I can do this. I can do yeah. this. Um, it's right. not It's not as scary as, you know, okay, Carmen, you have to stand at the end of your driveway and proclaim Jesus, um, you know, <laughs> because that's the way we do evangelism. No, no. We love our neighbors. Like, let's love them. And they will grow curious as to what we're doing and why we're doing it the way we're doing it. And they will ask questions and we will invite them into our homes and we will break bread together and we will have fellowship and they will see that Christians aren't totally creepy. And we will get to know one another. And in those relationships, right, the gospel will be evident because that's who we are. It's who we are. And what you've just described, Carmen, so well is hopeful. Right. It be, be, because right. we can do something. And yes, our culture has changed. And yes, maybe we're the visiting team now as Christians. OK, what can we do about that? What can we do that's hopeful uh, in the midst of our situation and everything you just described? That's why we called it the Hopeful Neighborhood Project, because it is about hope and we are people of hope. Uh, you know, the, the, the Israelites uh, in Babylon in exile, they, they could have just said, man, I, you know, it's terrible that now we live in Babylon in this terrible place. And And they could have circled their wagons. They could have curled in on themselves, as Luther put it. But they didn't because God said, no, I want you to seek the welfare of the city right where you are. Same thing with the early Christians uh, in Asia Minor. You know, pandemics come through and they they could have just curled in and and, and hid away from everyone. But they didn't. They, They found ways to love people in tangible ways. And like you said, Carmen. It starts with small things, and 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 it's amazing right now because a lot of us are spending more time in our neighborhoods than we previously have. Right, mm-hmm, we're not commuting absolutely. as much as we are. We're we're many of us are working from home. You know, I'm officing from home right now. I've seen more. I've spent more time in my neighborhood in the last nine, seven months uh, than maybe the last seven years. I don't, maybe that's an exaggeration, but. We're spending more time in our neighborhoods. What an opportunity for us to not just survive this time or get through it and, and, and miss our Christian friends, but to say, I'm going to make some new friends who, who are different than me, and, and we're going we're gonna to make a positive difference together. And, and who knows what doors that could open for the gospel. 
Amen. All right, that's Don Everts. Uh, we want you to check out hopefulneighborhood.org. We also want you to check out the book that's related to it, The Hopeful Neighborhood. If you're interested in uh, in receiving a copy, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Don, I love what you're doing. I love the way that you're doing it. Thank you, um, as always, so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Carmen. And thank you, Paul, for the inspiring music. There you go. Amen. We'll be right back. All right, I am. Uh, I am. I've just been sketching out my street and my neighborhood. Um, I have grown more curious about who my neighbors are and what they're up to, and now I'm going to pursue them in prayer. Um, I'm going to look for ways to care for them, in order that God might also provide opportunities to share the gospel with them. There you go. Prayer, care, share. We've talked about it before. We're talking about it again today. Let's be. Uh, let's be curious about what God is doing in and around us. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.